Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. This week I found out that not that many people around here know the term Tiger Mom. Do you guys know what that term means, Tiger Mom? Some of you, okay. That's a mom um, that kind of has this authoritarian parenting style and they, she pushes her kids towards lots of academic achievement and loads them up with lots of extracurricular activities. And typically it's an Asian thing. And I assure you that the Asian vibe is real. I, uh, that, was, that was me, the kid there at the end. And I had two brothers, three brothers actually, but they were like that as well. The reason why I wanted to um, share that clip with you is because, well, I'm Asian, right? And so was my mom and my dad. I grew up as the son of first-generation Filipino immigrants. My father was a prominent Filipino leader in the Salinas Valley, um, working towards civil rights. My mother was his dutiful wife, who was a registered nurse long before Filipino nurses became a cliché. So it was ingrained into me and my brothers at a very, very early age to work hard and to assimilate into the culture and above all, achieve. And I did. In fact, that was my role in the family. I was the valedictorian. I was the all-state musical prodigy. I was the boy who always obeyed the rules. I was the smart kid with the glasses who skipped a grade in elementary school and started university at 16 years of age. Even today, my, my little brother still refers to me as the golden child. So let me give you an example of what it was like to be me as a kid. Whenever we had visitors over to the house, I was the kid paraded out into the living room to greet them. And my mom would yell out in her Filipino accent, and I need to get this right, Mani, come play the piano for your auntie. <laughs> yes. And then I would play some Mozart or Bach or something quite legit. And they would always say, Mani, that sounds so beautiful. <laughs> that is a total Asian thing. But you know what else is Asian that's kind of whack? Filipino parents want their children to play a musical instrument. They want them to play it really, really well. But they definitely do not want them to become musicians for a living. <laughs> Filipino Parents want their sons or daughters to be a doctor or a nurse or an engineer in that order. Now, obviously there's nothing wrong with these professions, and I want to emphasize strongly that I had wise and loving parents who I loved and I adored. But you grow up with these expectations that are upon you as a kid, and it affects you somehow. These pressures form you in invisible ways that may or may not be consistent with the way of the kingdom, or how God intends you to be. Well, this isn't just an Asian thing, right? We live in an entire culture, particularly here in Folsom and in the surrounding areas, where many invisible cultural forces are always at work. These forces are are powerful and sometimes insidious. And you and I, and our neighbors, and families, and companies, and even the local church, we're all susceptible to it. The forces that I'm referring to this morning are success, ambition, achievement, status. 
the drive to be better than others, the drive to look better than others, the need to be at the front of that pecking order, wherever that pecking order might be, the need to get better grades, the higher promotion, the fancier car, the blonder hair, the bigger house, the trophy children, to be successful and to show it. And also perhaps the need to rate and pass judgment on others to see where you stand in that pecking order. You see it at Intel and Apple and Hewlett-Packard and Aerojet. You see it on the soccer fields and the baseball fields and the football fields here in our community. You see it driving around town, people cutting each other off to get one car ahead of the next guy. You see it in the gyms and the spas and the fitness centers. You see it with yuppies and with Gen X and millennials. And unfortunately, you see it in our high schools, our middle schools, and even in our elementary schools. In March of this year, federal prosecutors filed criminal charges to over 50 people, including 33 parents, over bribery, cheating, and money laundering regarding a number of college admissions applicants. These parents were accused of paying out more than $25 million between 2011 and 2018 to fraudulently inflate test scores and bribe college officials at elite universities. Since this includes felony mail fraud conspiracy and laundering funds through a charitable organization, charges have a maximum term of 20 years in prison and up to a $250,000 fine. This college admissions bribery scandal included not only parents, but also coaches, athletic staff, administrators, and testing officials. And in most cases, the actual students weren't even aware that this was happening to them. Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman was probably the most notable of those charged and convicted. She paid a private college counselor to bribe test officials and bump up SAT scores for her daughter, Sophia. Felicity shared the moment when Sophia found out about the deception. She tragically writes, When my daughter looked at me and asked me with tears streaming down her face, Why didn't you believe in me? Why didn't you think I could do it on my own? The question really is why. Why would otherwise upstanding citizens go to such illegal lengths to get their children into these prestigious schools? What motivated them to set aside their morals to do this? And what made them think they could get away with it? Well, believe it or not, there was a notable tiger mom in the Bible, and she went to Jesus to try to get her sons a favored place in the success circle. In a sense, she was trying to manipulate, trying to game the system for her two sons. And you can find this account in the book of Matthew, chapter 20. You'd, would you please stand for the reading of the word? If you want to follow along in the Bibles next to you, it's on page 987. I'm going to be reading Matthew, chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. And you be seated. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it, I don't find it very hard to contextualize this particular Bible incident in modern times. You could easily picture this very same thing happening even now. So, I want you to picture this passage of scripture happening in Folsom in 2019. Tiffany, a Folsom mom, pulls into the parking lot in her Land Rover with her two sons, Liam and Topher. (laughs) She sees Jesus at Schipolini's with his disciples having an artichoke spinach dip and bacon-wrapped jalapenos. (laughs) This is her chance. So she goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I am such a fan. I've read all your blogs and I follow you on Twitter. Hashtag water to wine. (laughs) What is it you want? He asked. Well, if it isn't too much trouble, would you write a few letters of rec for my two boys? We've been applying to the Ivy League schools and, of course, Stanford and Berkeley, but you know how it is. Liam and Topher have been working with an SAT prep tutor and a college admissions counselor, and, of course, they did community service at the church to pump up their resumes. But a letter of rec from you would really go a long way. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Liam and Topher are confused. Is this something we can do online, they ask? (laughs) Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now when their friends, Harper and Grayson and Camden and Taylor, heard about this, they got like totes jelly and started acting all salty and aggro. Ask a young person. And that's when Jesus rolled his eyes and sighed, whatever. Now, I did this little exercise because I want to make it a point that this this very thing happens now and happens often. We are a society continually jockeying for position, chasing status and image and celebrity. But we all know that this is not the way of the kingdom, is it? So... I want to talk for a bit about something I'm calling God's spiritual economy. Last Sunday, Pastor Mike made the argument that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And as such, our citizenship to heaven should stand above and dictate whatever secondary affiliations we have. Our citizenship to the kingdom should drive our citizenship of our country, our affiliation to our political party, our affiliations with our social groups, even our favorite social causes. And he argued, and I think rightly so, that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first major public teaching, is the constitution for those who are citizens of this kingdom. Pastor Mike stated this so eloquently last Sunday that I just want to repeat it as a reminder to all of us. It's on the screens. We as citizens of God's kingdom have decided to forfeit our rights and live by a different constitution 
called the Sermon on the Mount. We have one right, and that is we have the right to take up our cross daily and die to self. Our responsibility as kingdom citizens and as a faith community, our calling, if you prefer, is to manifest the character of Jesus in this world. Well, not only do I believe in that, but I'd like to submit that not only is it the Constitution, but God's spiritual economy is also different than that of the world. His spiritual economy is not at all like the one lived out around us. In fact, Jesus taught this over and over and over again. Now, I'm going to ask for this next slide to come up. And as it does, I want to take a long, luxurious moment and just allow the truths of Jesus to seep into our bones. As I read each of these truths, and I'm going to take my time and read them slowly, I want you to be attentive to Jesus' teaching and let these truths kind of wash over you for a moment. The first shall be last. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. The meek will inherit the earth. You must be like a child to be great in the kingdom. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. To be great in his kingdom, you must be a servant. What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul. This is so unlike our culture, so unlike the world. This is so upside down to everything that is reflected to us by our society. And yet, the kingdom is the true right-side-up reality for those of us who profess to be citizens of the kingdom. Jesus taught and modeled grace and humility and servanthood. He taught us to learn to die to self and to have the faith of a child. He said that our ambitions should be kingdom ambitions, not earthly ones. And he said that greatness is found not in worldly success, but in growing our hearts to love God and love others. I want to just reiterate this. These are not religious platitudes. This is an expression of the very heart of God. It confirms that those of us who measure ourselves according to our personal successes are living upside down. Dallas Willard uses the analogy of the airplane pilot who was lost in the clouds. Without instrumentation working, the pilot lost her bearings and didn't realize that she was flying upside down. Trying to gain altitude, she flew right into the ground. And this is the way of the world. We find ourselves caught up in the anxiety of our economy because we have put our faith in money. We find ourselves lost in the pursuit of happiness because we think happiness is about the pursuit of me-oriented success. We believe that life is about seeking wealth, fame, and pleasure instead of more noble things like the development of character, the pursuit of selflessness, the living out of kindness and justice and grace. As Christians, we also forget that our lives are not our own, 
for they have been bought with a price. And our lives include our finances, our possessions, our families, our comfort, even our will. So where does this come from? Where is it, what is at the root of our neediness? And I want to talk about the roots of success here. Well, my, in my experience, the drive to succeed was driven by my personal need for significance. It was rooted in my identity, or more specifically, in my false identity. You see, we buy into a lie, and the lie is we are what we do. Our identity is found in what we accomplish or achieve. We're measured by our accolades and trophies, our grades and our cumulative GPA, our promotions and our job titles. Achievement becomes the collateral to buy your self-worth. Status and stature are the ways in which we measure significance. So I want to do everything I can to ensure that I get that. So the object of life becomes getting the prestigious job, owning the fancy house, marrying the trophy spouse, having popular friends, accomplishing big things. Because if I can do that, then I've proven my significance. I I matter because I am what I do. And then on the flip side, I will only value others to the degree that they affirm my own success. But you see how destructive that is? See how destructive that can be? People become chess pieces in the game to get ahead. Image management becomes more important than character or substance. Talent is seen not as a blessing, but as a commodity. Co-workers become rivals, not team members. Spouses can be discarded if they fail to project the right image or fail to reflect your false self back to you. Children are not souls to be loved and nurtured, but trophies that we can show off our superior parenting skills. And this just doesn't happen out in the world either. It happens in churches too. A lot of churches will talk about grace in great theological and conceptual ways, but then act practically in legalistic and success-oriented ways. Because it's messy and uncomfortable to profess Jesus while at the same time admit to being the Savior-needing sinners that we are. So, Often the culture of the American church is to hide behind religious platitudes and buttoned-up testimonies. And we lose the transformational power that comes from speaking from a vocabulary of truth and transparency and repentedness and just plain neediness. Now, let me throw in a disclaimer here. I want to state unequivocally that success is and of itself a good thing. Well-ordered ambition is a good thing. Work ethic and drive and reward are good things. We human beings are intended to strive fully and to work hard and to achieve. We are intended to succeed in this thing called life. This is a part of the, what's called the cultural mandate, right in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply, to care for and steward the earth, even to achieve and attain and imagine. So God doesn't want us to not do things, He certainly does want us to succeed. But the issue is is twofold. One, those of us with performance addictions, and I put myself in that place, need to learn how to disconnect achievement from our identity. And two, from our true identity in Christ, we need to redefine what success is using a kingdom perspective. So let's talk about identity first. If our identity is not found in our successes and achievement then where does it come from? 
Well, the short answer is Jesus. If we are citizens of the kingdom, and if Jesus truly is our king, then our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. So we're going to do this again. I'm going to share with you some more truths. And once again, I want to take some luxurious time to allow the truths of Jesus to soak in. Allow these truths to wash over you and permeate deeply in you. This is your identity. You are a child of God whom he dearly loves. You are his son or daughter and he is our Abba, our Daddy, our Abba Father. You are a people for God's own possession. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. You are righteous and holy in the likeness of God. You are set apart for God's purposes and His glory. You are an expression of the very life of Christ. You are His workmanship. You are chosen of God. You are holy and beloved. See, this is the person that God sees in you. This is your true identity. This is the thing that matters the most about who you are. This is your real identity, the one that is deeply real and deeply true and deeply grounded in Christ. And let me say this, you cannot earn this identity. You need not strive for acceptance. You only need understand what is already true. Now, I want to be sensitive here because we're on the threshold of holy ground as I speak this. If you're one of those people who has been driven by the invisible forces of ambition and status and you recognize that you've been striving because you felt the need to earn your identity or earn the love and acceptance of others, I just want to speak into you now and say that you can lay that down now. You can lay that down. Your identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And he loves you. And he accepts you for who he made you to be. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about is, is learning how to redefine success according to the kingdom. And as we said before, the metrics of the kingdom look upside down to the world's, from the world's perspective. But it is truly the only right-side-up way to live. Jesus, once again, is our role model. Jesus had one ambition, and that was to do the will of his Heavenly Father. So, let me give you another definition, maybe the true definition, of what success is, okay? Success is to live out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Success is to live out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So think about the various aspects of your life. In your job or career or your school, are you living in such a way that God's kingdom comes and his will is being done? In your marriage and in your family 
Are you becoming a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a brother or a sister for whom the kingdom is breaking out? You see, it's not about climbing the ladder. Climbing the ladder is a good thing. It's about how you climb the ladder and who you are becoming as you take that one one rung at a time. Is your ladder climbing begetting increasing generosity, kindness, love, grace, joy? Are you being an instrument of increasing shalom to those around you? As you climb, if you are climbing to higher positions, is it marked by an equally greater humility? As you climb to positions of greater power, are you using that power to incarnate greater shalom, greater kingdom prevailing flourishing? In whatever spheres of influence you have, and every person has a sphere of influence, are you learning in greater ways to give yourself away? So how should we respond? So in our time remaining, I'm going to address two groups of people in the room. Those of us who are older and those of us who are younger, and I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out which group you want to be in. Let me um, address first those who are further along in the life journey. And I want to be sensitive here because, as I said, we're on holy ground as we speak this. This week, as I was um, contemplating this message, I was talking to Pastor Lorraine, and she and I began talking about success as seen through the lens of the memorial service, or as we call it here, the celebration of life. Because speaking as a pastor, one of the areas where a person's successes become most visible is during their memorial service. Now, I've been a part of probably over a hundred or more memorial services in my time in vocational ministry. And I always get a sense that that person has led a good life when the conversations and the discussions about that person center around their character and their relationships, who they were and how they were with others. In fact, this becomes the most important thing to talk about in a memorial service. Because it's an evidence of a life well lived. Yes, we do mention a person's achievements during the service, what successes and accomplishments and things that they've done in their life. But really, that's just fodder for the eulogy. The real mark of a person, the real and true significance of a person is displayed through the lives that were touched and the love that was shared. When it's all said and done, a person's achievements and successes are only a footnote. What really matters is the things that are really eternal, which really doesn't boil down to just two things, loving God and loving others. The Apostle Paul shares this very sobering thought through the book of Philippians, and this is the message version. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. That's some pretty strong stuff there. For those of you who are further along in life's journey, For those of you who are in the midst of attaining and striving out in the world, I encourage you to reconsider what your definition of success is. As you get older, 
you're going to become less productive, at least in the world's eyes. It's inevitable, my friends. But if you're kingdom-focused, perhaps you will learn in greater and greater and greater ways this very advanced art of giving your life away. To be great in the kingdom, you must be a servant. To save your life, you must lose it. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So, I just want to encourage you now. Lay down the heavy stone of trying to earn your significance. Trying to prove your worth. Just love God and love people. And that is the greater success. Now, I couldn't help but think about our dearly beloved friend, Teresa Harbert. And we had her celebration of life this last January, and she leaves a hole in our hearts that is still felt by many people. Her legacy, her fingerprint on this church and her talents and skills were huge. But they are easily overshadowed by the loveliness of her character and the depth of her relationships with many of us. I see her as a great example of someone who gave her life away and who succeeded in life according to God's kingdom economy. Now, let me address those who are at the beginning steps of their life journey. Those of you who are at the beginning stages of your adult life. And once again, I want to be sensitive here because we're on holy ground as we share this. As I mentioned earlier, I was 16 years old when I graduated from high school. And I moved to San Luis Obispo and I began attending Cal Poly. And I have to say, I was pretty full of myself. I was valedictorian. I had a brand new car. And the prettiest girl in school was my girlfriend. Don't ask me how I did it. But that, it was what it was. So yeah, I was actually quite full of myself. But when I started at Cal Poly, I realized that everyone around me was as smart or if not smarter than me. Which meant that suddenly I was getting B's and C's until the winter quarter of my freshman year when I got a D in chemistry and my girlfriend broke up with me. I was devastated. I'd never got even C's before. It was the lowest, darkest, saddest time of my life. And I remember feeling very alone in my dorm room, sitting at my desk, looking confused at my chem book, confused and angry and sad and feeling like the whole world was falling apart. Looking back now, I understand that I was having a crisis of identity. Remember, I defined myself as a smart guy, the talented guy, the guy whose self-identity was wrapped up in all of my achievements. But if I didn't have that anymore... Who was I? I was having a major crisis of identity and a major crisis of the heart. Now, I mentioned that it was the lowest, darkest, saddest time in my life. So low that that evening, I seriously committed, I seriously considered committing suicide. Right there in my dorm room, sitting at my desk, looking confused at my chem book. Confused and angry and sad and feeling like the whole world was falling apart. Now, obviously, I did not take my life that evening, and I thank God that he protected me and brought me through all of that. But I made two decisions that quarter at Cal Poly. One, to humble myself and get some tutoring and help me get myself out of that situation. And two, 
not to make this a part of what defined me and to not take myself so seriously, which is what I was doing. And this is where it gets interesting because I decided that life was more than just success and accolades and trophies on the shelf and GPA and getting the approval of my tiger mom and other people around me. And that's when I started a band. And I began gigging at coffee houses and injecting more fun into my life. That's how I ended up being a really good musician and doing all of the things that sent me down this trajectory to be right where I am right now. Yes, it's important to have goals and to succeed and to try hard. Yes, it is important to carefully consider the things which will set your future. But there are so many pressures on you young people to study and compete and get good grades and set up your career. And they can be overwhelming. Overwhelming. I know this firsthand. As I mentioned at the beginning of my message, I was the golden child of a tiger mom. For me, all these pressures and all these expectations placed on me and expectations I placed on myself sent me to the very brink of it all. But please understand that the world's metrics, like fame or wealth and status, are so incredibly superficial and temporary and hollow. And if you allow these things to run you, you will end up with a miserable life. So young people, This is my advice to you. Breathe easy. Breathe easy. God loves you and cares for every aspect of your life and wants to flourish fully and lightly, allow you to flourish fully and lightly in his kingdom, in his benevolent and grace-filled rule and reign. You can lay down the stones that weigh heavily in your heart, for his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Now I'm going to ask Jordan to come on up and he's going to share a song. And as he does so, I just want to take a moment to allow you in the quiet of your heart to do some business with God. Consider what it really means to have success. Does it look like status and stress and striving? Does it look like the world's version? Or is it something else, something different? something of God.